Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Hunter Vaughn, uh, Senior Research Associate at the Mindaroo Center for Technology and Democracy at the University of Cambridge. Well, hi, and thanks very much for joining us. We're both dealing with marauding cats. Who could... <laughs> there are four of them. You've got three. I have just one. But mine is a Basque militant, although a Pacific Basque militant. So who knows what he'll be capable of. But three is a lot. So there may be moments of feline intervention, folks. Prof, so I'm, I'm uh, wanting to ask you to start with my usual question to people, which is, could you tell us what is dynamizing you, preoccupying you, troubling you, interesting you today? Um, yes, other than other than possible cat interventions. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I'm kind of trying to stay off of of social media and internet news for now because the election is starting to gear up in the U.S. Uh, and I can't really handle six months of Trump, eight months of Trump. Um, mm. also can't really handle any more like random mythologies about Taylor Swift. So really the internet's just kind of really challenging, um, uh, my, my, my faith in humanity. Um, I would say like something that's really bothered me recently was the, uh, Sam Altman, mm -hmm. the head of open AI, um, <clears throat> these, the statements that he was making, I think in Davos, uh, about, uh, the energy that AI consumes, um, and this sort of, you know, um, just like neoliberal logic that therefore we're going to need new sources of energy. The, the answer is never less digital growth. Yes. The answer is never like, maybe we should question applying AI to everything or using algorithmic hypercomputing at the scale that completely depletes the planet. Um, so yeah, I think that the way in which he kind of answered his own comments and then the way in which they've been addressed, that, that's, that, that sort of is a, just kind of like a canary in the coal mind, um, I think manifestation of one of my biggest ongoing concerns, which is sort of the combination of the, the problems of wide scale open-mouthed acceptance of machine learning as some inevitability and therefore necessity and therefore ubiquity and the um, specifically energy concerns, but in general, just sort of environmental destabilization caused by the, the, the digital turn and all of the global, local, social justice issues that are, are going to continue to deepen with that crisis. And that's what's that's what's bothering me. <laughs> yeah, I can understand why, Prof. And one of the things that puzzles me here is the way in which these technologies, I mean, something like artificial intelligence has been used by in sports journalism for almost 20 years, mm -hmm. are suddenly announced as both inevitable and already here, but also as the future, and therefore things that must require massive adjustment by all concerned yeah being seen as choices that are made by state and capital at various points in history yeah um and yeah no i mean that's, that's sorry go ahead no no it's a it's a great point and i think that 
it's very it's very weird the way you know historical turns happen in those like little little slow ease us into normalization but then suddenly just like a massive cascade explosion because i would say that you know obviously the internet is not brand new um digital computing isn't brand new um but there is a shift and 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 you know capitalism <laughs> isn't brand new and the power of money over policy and decision making isn't new but there has been a really radical shift i would say in this millennium you know at least in the last 20 years of forms of power uh from the nation state which was sort of the paradigm of the past two centuries uh to something else that's more globally corporate um privatized monetized so yeah i i can't tell if any of this is new if it's been a slow burn all along or if suddenly we woke up and something and like suddenly mark zuckerberg runs the world um yeah to me that that happened pretty quickly but and it happened more quickly than you know policy could keep up regulation could keep up not that anyone's trying to regulate but you know faster than like critical research could keep up faster than any sort of um whistleblowing or yeah i mean i think that people have blown whistles on it along the way and been ignored but yeah speed prof in terms of the research center with which you're affiliated could you tell us a a a wee bit about this problematic or this issue that's raised in the title and in much of what you've already said, namely the relationship between democracy and technology. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, I think this is actually something we, we talk about. Uh, it's, it's a small core group um, and, and they're really wonderful. We, and when we get together, it's, we often talk about the sort of big picture issues about this, overlap or this whether it's an overlap or a combat between technology and democracy um one of the questions that often comes up that there are two major questions i think one mm-hmm. is sort of what is the technology that is meant because you know you can go back to the opening scene of stanley kubrick's 2001 at the very least if we want to talk about technology um so are we specifically just talking about the acceleration of certain problems posed by technology that has arisen um, through digitalization and the speedy mining of rare metals, the opening up of the earth, you know, the processing, all of that. Um, So I think that, you know, specifically, at least at our center, I would say in my research, it's focused mainly on digital technology um and screen technologies uh but my work looks more at infrastructures as well so not just sort of the the communication side or the art side of film and and media and television but also the infrastructural side of data centers and subsea networks that circulate all of the data um around the planet now the democracy part is even more slippery i think and more problematic because I, it's, you know, there's kind of, we always come back to this notion of like, is, is big tech, is tech power, are the dangers and harms of social media, are these threatening democracy 
or are they threatening a type of Western liberalism that has masqueraded as democracy uh, is, you know, whatever roles that Twitter or Cambridge Analytica or, or whatever played in things like Brexit and the Trump election, like was, is, is Trump being elected over Hillary Clinton in a two party system, both of which are fairly right capitalist libertarian for the most part, is that democracy? Like is American, is the American bipartisan system democracy? And if so, is that really being challenged by social media and things like that? So, yeah, I think that there's a big, a lot to be said there. Um, I personally don't think that I any longer harbor illusions that uh, European sort of Euro Anglophone United States democracy is some perfect political um, distribution of power and agency and fairness and due process. Uh, where I see the democracy playing out or or being at stake in the sort of growth of of expansion of digitalization on all four on all levels, uh, social, political, cultural is excuse me is where it comes to issues of social justice, decision making, and agency. Um, and again, this is both a screen communication issue, uh, but also an infrastructural issue. Uh, where are these infrastructures built? Who gets to decide that? What local communities do they impact? Who do they benefit? Who has access to them? How do they affect? Um, how do they affect and interact with traditional forms of ecological knowledge? With traditional sets of, of values uh, and community identity? I think that that's, to me, that's probably more at stake and 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 meaty of a problem than whether or not they are tinkering with which 75-year-old white guy gets to spin the White House for four years. Not to say that, you know, Trump is a disaster and another Trump administration would be a disaster, and that is definitely worth fighting against, and the rigging or manipulation of elections and, uh, you know, democratic elections or, or elections where all people are allowed votes, which would be more democratic, are a very important institution of a fair and just society. So I'm not trying to minimalize that or, or, or dismiss it. Um, I guess I'm just throwing more into question whether we have to fetishize this abstract notion of democracy that we're not actually realizing um, or, or manifesting whether that has to be fetishized in order to protect some of the, the parts or facets of it at stake that we hold dear. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> getting on to this infrastructure question. So some of your research has been or is, I think, into the undersea, the aquatic elements of this infrastructure. And that seems to me to be an important topic, not least because in the mythology of the Internet, it operates via the ether. Or if it gets near liquid, it's because it's in a thing called the cloud. 
with all the mm-hmm. mythologizing of that metaphor. Condensating, right? <laughs> <laughs> Quite. Precipitation is bringing mm-hmm. us together in this Zoom call, Prof H. Yeah, yeah. So for those folks who may not be aware of this, could you give us a little bit of the contemporaneity and the backstory to where our infrastructure for the I word actually is? Absolutely, happily. Um, so going back to the mid 19th century, 1850s, 1860s, uh, when the first transatlantic telegraph cable was laid, uh, which became, which, and, and undersea or, or suboceanic <clears throat> telegraph cables were a massive tool in the expansion of empire in the, the second half of the 19th century. Um, so ever since that, a large, you know, and up until today, a large majority of global communication takes place along the ocean floor. Um, still over 95% of, of global data circulation, culture, communication, commerce, all goes along fiber optic cables uh, that are snaking ocean floors, connecting continents, connecting countries, but also maintaining certain cartographies of enclosure, of empire, of new forms of colonialism as new forms of power are popping up. Uh, and so if you look sort of at like around 1900, you have a global telegraph map, which basically mimics, looks just like the maritime shipping route maps that were developed in the 17 and 1800s. If you look at today's fiber optic map, uh, then which you can find online, that they're really fascinating, then you can see a very similar sort of basic mapping design or pattern following along these routes. Now, in the process of that repetition or that repetition and difference, um, if we want to just throw a little Deleuze in for fun, um, you see some morphology over the past century and a half of different forms of power, but also the maintenance of different forms of power. So, for example, a lot of South American or Latin American, South American Caribbean um, subsea connections actually still have to go through Florida in order to connect to the rest of the world. Even if, you know, emails from Brazil going to Chile might have to go through Florida. I think as of a couple of years ago, still over 75% of, of South American um, global communication had to go through the U.S. Uh, this is, you know, it's like the Monroe Doctrine, but digitalized and laid along the ocean floor, the sort of <laughs> hemispheric enclosure and maintenance of, of whatever you want to call it, post-colonial, neo-colonial, digital colonial um, power. So, yeah, so these, you know, for the most part, as you said, like the tech industry did a great job of creating and enforcing this sort of mythology of the cloud, right? Um, This notion that all of our digital existence, digital culture is all existing somewhere in the ether, which gives us the impression that it's immaterial, um, and in a way that it's, it's protected, it's away from us, it's out of the way, it's invisible. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
uh, you and, and Richard Maxwell wrote a wonderful book called Green in the Media um, over a decade ago now, uh, I believe, which was an important intervention, I think, in helping many people realize that that myth was exactly that. It was a myth. Um, and that, you know, there is a huge material price and weight to that that culture to the to digital existence um subsea cables like the myth of the cloud like data centers which are largely you know designed planned constructed in out of the way places where you know either they are invisible or they're only visible to communities that decision makers think don't count or don't matter um these infrastructures of the internet are intentionally meant to be invisible because that perpetuates the mythology of immateriality and allows for the continued exponential increase of production, manufacturing, etc. while all of us hang out on Zoom and we just think it's kind of bouncing around in the ether, as you said. Um, I think the subsea cables are becoming, are, are probably the, the least popularly known aspect of this infrastructure. And I think that they like it that way, that it's a, it's a, it's a, a small sort of subsector of a massive, of that massive ICT and telecom sector. Uh, data centers take up most of the bandwidth, most of the energy, most of the environmental impacts, most of the jobs most of the money um, and most of the conversation. <laughs> and when um, the ICT, he means information <laughs> and communications technology. Yes. Sorry, my, yeah. my task on earth is to be Mr. Acronym. Gotcha. Okay, <laughs> good, good. Um, I, I will try to avoid acronyms. No, acronyms are fine. They give me my little way in. <laughs> okay, got it. Okay. In fact, in that case, I'll try to drop more acronyms. Um <laughs> I may have to look them up first, of course, before <laughs> I jump in, but nevertheless. Um, yeah, I think that I think the subsea cable world has really like enjoyed mm -hmm. its 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 privacy. It enjoys being unknown. Um not in like a totally nefarious way. I um I think that it's I mean, in a way it it sort of has to be invisible or unknown because it's actually very um so we're not vulnerable well the and, only thing and... i ever read about it is when i read the <clears throat> sharks or russians exactly <laughs> i was gonna say or russia yeah <laughs> and so that's why you know i think everyone's heard of subsea cables now because whatever a year and a half ago was the the russia story um excuse me maybe two or three years ago during the pandemic, uh, Tonga, which only has one cable landing station um, and therefore one sea, subsea connection, uh, that's that was severed for a few days, and it was um, a moment where, like, an entire you know society or or, or national population had mm. massive disruptions, mm. um, which really should not be the end of the world, but because of the way we live now, it it is. Um, but it showed sort of the fragility of 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 that. Now, 
of, again, kind of going back to my opening point uh, about what uh, Sam Altman said about AI and energy, the response, I think, to that story was not, let's be less dependent on mm -hmm. internet commerce or existence or on subsea cable networks. It was, we need redundancy. So now we need like three of everything just in case one of them fails. And then we're, you know, what if the second one fails while we're fixing the first one, then we need the third one. And that is, uh, that's going, you know, there's, there's some really good research um, about sort of mapping the notion of redundancy back to like the military industrial complex and the use of military funding for research and development uh, in computing technologies and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, so I think that the Tonga story was, uh, I believe it was Tonga, was a, a pretty big um, sort of global news moment. Uh, and then the Russia one um, also. But, like, you can go back, I mean, when World War One broke out, the first thing that England did was go snip all of Germany's subsea telegraph cables. Like, this isn't a brand new concept. It's not like... Um, it's not just like a 21st century Bond villain concept. Uh, this is, you know, this has been understood for a while as a really important aspect of of um, of global communication. It's continuing to grow. Um, there are, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a variety of of its of of projects that are in planning or in current implementation that again sort of reiterates the um genealogy of 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 this technology and these infrastructures going back into sort of expansions of colonialism um there's a the two africa project uh which is meta i believe orange is still part of it and a couple of other companies i can't remember which uh there's a Chinese telecom company. I can't remember, can't remember which, but basically the, their plan and their website said this. I don't know if it still does, but like their mission statement was very honest about how they're basically encircling Africa to tap an untapped market. And it is like, if you go back, I mean, you can find easily online the, the, the um, newspaper political cartoons critiquing the, the scramble for Africa, right? And the, in the late 1800s, whereby all of the major European colonial powers basically just divided Africa up to take its resources so that they could avoid fighting over it. Uh, if you replace, you know, Belgium, Netherlands, France, England, you know, whatever five or six European countries were at that table with like five or six global telecom or big tech superpowers, it's the exact same thing. Same story. Um, same story. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's China Mobile International. Yes, thank you. One of the partners. And one of the great terms that these bastards use, which is particularly meaningful in US language, is deployment. Yep. Which <clears throat> yeah. in the United States generally means you're in the War. military and you've been sent off to kill people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, totally. And and I think that that's funny because I think I use the same term. I might have already used the same term in this podcast <clears throat> because it is. I mean, that's how it's viewed and that's how it's enacted. And, yeah. And, of course, this is not long after, I guess, the last 10 years, 
that the U.S. has added to its command centers of the military around the world, AFRICOM. Um, right. You know, it's long had, obviously, these gigantic groups of bases in Asia, in Europe, uh, and so on. But now it, it there, Africa is profoundly part of the target. And that's because the U.S. wants to be able to shut off supply lines uh, for Chinese aggression. Sure, of course. For Chinese deployment. <laughs> Chinese deployment. Yeah, of course, we're laughing about these things because they're so awful and absurd, even though we both realize that these are deadly serious matters. But part of not going insane when you're trying to deal with U.S. geopolitics, let alone domestic politics, is to laugh. Uh, it requires a lot of black humor. Otherwise, you just you do you lose your mind, or you just fall into profound depression and hopeless resignation. Reminds me, Prof H, of a popular bumper sticker in the seventies. I think it was that read, "Visit the United States before it visits you." Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite lines. So, moving away from communications infrastructure in the sense of interpersonal, intergovernmental, intercommercial communication. Your earlier work, going back only about five years, I guess, was to produce a a very important uh, book about Hollywood and uh, its environmental impact, uh, um, the hidden costs of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could... If you can still remember five years ago, and I I had a conversation with someone who who couldn't remember their earlier work. (laughs) So I had to read out a couple of abstracts to them. And I I have sympathy with this. Yeah. Share with us if you what happens when you that's what happens when you when you write so much. Well, you're too prolific, then you can't remember. (laughs) In any event. Could you tell us a little bit about that terrific book? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, Hollywood's Dirtiest Secret came out, I think it was published in like 2019. Um, it's basically an environmental counter narrative to Hollywood history. And it goes, uses certain iconic films and film moments in order to look mm. both at the historical changes and um sort of the the historical um normalization of of certain standards of spectacle and resource use uh that was generated um for example through the burning of atlanta sequence and gone with the wind the sidewalk rain dancing sequence and singing in the rain yes um and then the second half of the book really focuses on the digital transition uh, and then I would say the, the the largest, angriest chapter of it uh, <laughs> looks at Avatar and looks at sort of the, the move to full-scale digitalization in the industry, but also ways in which digitalization has the digital turn was concurrent historically with greater public understanding and concern for climate change. Uh, for climate issues, and then Hollywood's very clever tactic to basically claim itself as the sort of for, um, front runner 
and, and harbinger of climate action and of, of climate consciousness and awareness. Uh, and then no one did this better than James Cameron, who used Avatar as a way both to promote himself as the, like, techno-fetishistic auteur <laughs> par excellence, uh, but also as this sort of um, hyper-woke, anti-colonialist eco-warrior. Um, <laughs> well, sometimes I think he claims that... Titanic is a Marxist film. <laughs> That's hilarious. Because it does have cla- elements of class struggle. But one it of the things... Acknowledges well, classism thing. Before I read your book, I tried to do some research into Avatar myself. And what I encountered was endless attacks on Cameron by the far right based on his ecological hypocrisy, attacks with which I found myself completely in agreement and then decided I couldn't really publish about this because I was in, I would be in such bad company. But there is an interesting moment here, isn't there, where Hollywood liberalism gets taken to the bar by analysts on the left, such as ourselves, and mm-hmm. by the right, and we have a lot in common with those critiques, no? Absolutely, and I think that that's, you know, this is the touch point of that is really the hypocrisy, like the profound hypocrisy of Hollywood, excuse me, like of Hollywood's pseudo progressive ideological grandstanding. And this goes back to, you know, like the 1930s onward, Frank Capra up to, you know, Martin Scorsese's romanticized, critiques of masculinity and capitalism capra's critiques i'm putting all this in these in air quotes right um of 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 corporate money of greed of capitalism all of this from an industry that is completely driven by profit margin by filmmakers and a film community that enjoys a massive degree of economic disparity and, and entitlement and privilege. Um, and now we have, uh, you know, a, an industry that often does beyond just sort of the 1990s, 2000s, transparent superficial greenwashing of, of studios and things like that is definitely trying to plant a flag as an important cultural mechanism for environmental engagement, values, and action. But the reality is that it has, since the 90s, basically said that sustainability and environmentalism are synonymous with digitalization. And we're going to, you know, we're going to go with little chips that have massive memories instead of big reels of celluloid. And we're going to get e-vehicles on studio lots instead of diesel. I mean, any tiny action is better than no action, but the ability to use the tiny actions to then claim to be doing far more than you are and then say the problem is in the consumer's hands then that's you know, becomes far more dangerous. And so the the book ends basically with looking specifically at production culture. So I turn kind of to <clears throat> excuse me, production culture studies 
from an environmental standpoint, looking at especially like mobile production, runaway production, ways in which Hollywood and big, big budget productions going all around the world leads to this incredible, like, first of all, it is, you know, uh, 1990s NAFTA style globalization. Um, but it's specifically, or at least I look specifically at the environmental ramifications of films like Titanic, like The Beach, and then you get into, over the past sort of 15 years, this circulation of film incentive hotspots from Detroit to New Orleans, and now to Atlanta, and I think it actually might stop in Atlanta, which is just going to become the hub that it already was becoming because Turner was there, um, you know, there was already a media community and, and base there, uh, which all of the other places like Detroit were trying to build, but never had the longevity to do so. And then it was shut down. Um, so this led me to working more directly with people in the industry. Um, and so ever since that book came out, I think that, that my work with the film and television industries um, has been far more focused on kind of leaving that ivory tower, trying to see how academic research can actually lead to like applied real world positive change, which requires compromise and reconciling, you know, reconciliation with the reality of, of, of how industry works. Um, and, and it's been interesting. Like sometimes it's horribly depressing and, you work for years and it's, it's similar in, in, in ICT and digital growth working um, with, with data center companies and, and stuff in subsea cable companies among which there are genuinely people that are, you know, very concerned about environmental destabilization um, and about climate justice issues. Uh, they're a minority and those issues tend to get deprioritized, even if they get uh, pushed by a strong advocate um, but yeah, it, it's an uphill battle and yeah, it can be frustrating. It can make you want to return <clears throat> into the ivory tower or the cave or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I, yeah, that's sort of where the, that work has led is, so the book was very much like a, a cultural, an environmental cultural history and it led to kind of veering away from studying issues of storytelling and representation and aesthetics and, and how those uh, cultivate environmental values or, or knowledge or not knowledge. I don't think there's much education or knowledge being produced in Hollywood um, and moving more towards working more towards the fact that, you know, I, I don't think that films about environmental topics, whether they are aggressively deconstructive or critical, or whether they're very soft and kind of neoliberal, which most of them are, those aren't really going to change much if the culture of the industry, which the audience is also very aware of, doesn't change. And so, as you know, the cliche goes, like, if they won't walk the walk then the talk isn't that useful because it gets forgotten people leave a movie theater people turn their screen off whatever <clears throat> so yeah it's kind of led more to focusing on 
trying to collaborate with building capacity within these industries so that maybe slowly or at least generationally, there will be larger change. And I think that that's starting to happen, but it might come from a completely different driver. I I don't think that (laughs) academic scholarship is necessarily going to uh, revolutionize um, these, these extremely capitalistic industries. But venture capital and the money that funds them is starting to really see environmental instability, sustainability, and social um, social justice issues and unrest as actual major risk factors in investment. And I don't really care, honestly, if it comes from like critical thinking and people becoming um, like industry people deciding that actually like environmental protection or or social equality are more important than maximizing profit or whether it's because they just want to get more capital from investment companies wherever it comes from yeah hopefully something pushes that needle prof i've got two more questions for you if i may and then i'd like to throw it back to you to give you the opportunity to add to or subtract from the things we've discussed does that sound all right that sounds good. I tend not to, I, I'm not, I'll see if I have something to add. I'm p- pretty much just uh, ranting it all at once. So I'm getting it out there. <laughs> so my first question is singing in the rain. Could yes. you, <laughs> and this is, you know, fan child speak speech here sure. because when I used to have summers on Long Island each year I would go to an event where uh, Cottonton and Green, who wrote the book, mm-hmm. would appear and accompany the film by telling us stories. And it was a film that, that sounds I, lovely. It was wonderful and privileged. So I want to know about the ecological take on Singing in the Rain and my own personal view is that uh, because the entirely flawed American in Paris won all those Academy Awards two years earlier, uh, Gene Kelly and Stanley Donen and whatnot would deny their true recognition mm-hmm. of the great films of all time in 53. But as I say, put Fanchild aside, forget about yes. me as a 12-year-old and talk to me as a as if I'm interested, and indeed I am, in the important chapter in your book. Um, it's funny that you you speak of it as if they got short shrifted. Um, their due acknowledgement when seen in the rain is one of, <clears throat> if not the most written about and sort of mythologized films in Hollywood history. <clears throat> so they've definitely gotten their due uh, accolades for it, I believe. Um, but it's also, I'm glad that you asked about it because that was the film that, basically started the project, the book project. Uh, I was, I was teaching an introduction to film class and I always teach singing in the rain in that film class. It's such a great sort of meta textual self-reflexive head spinner of, (laughs) uh, you know, Hollywood insider critique of Hollywood values while also completely upholding them 
at the same time. It's all about, you know, the, the superficiality, the, the, um, the deceptions of things like lip syncing while Debbie Reynolds wasn't actually singing. Like it's all amazing. The whole thing's just like insane. It's, it's amazing. Um, and there's the scene in it where Gene Kelly, he can't, you know, he can't, he's not a genuine human, so he can't express his affection for this woman without doing it performatively on a Hollywood soundstage. So he takes her onto the soundstage and he sets this romantic scene and he does so by turning on all of these, the, the, the infrastructure of the Hollywood dream factory, right? The fans, the lights, he turns the lights on and says 500,000 kilowatts of stardust. And the whole time he's like doing a checklist of the re natural resources, basically, that go into this manufacturing of a spectacle, which ironically is itself part of the manufacturing of the spectacle that is singing in the rain that we all watch. <clears throat> so I was sitting there while I was watching this with like whatever, 50 undergraduate students in this big auditorium. And that scene happened. And I just started thinking really <clears throat> more specifically about the environmental impacts of, of screen culture, um, but hadn't really gotten into it, done any research, whatever. And that scene happened. And I just like, I sat up and I just like looked around. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like this was, this is an, an endemic concept that was somehow actually self-consciously there the whole time but also sort of intentionally flippantly ignored um and and so i go through i start doing a bunch of archive research on the making of the film things things like that looking at assistant directors reports etc very much focused on its use of water because from the film's title to the iconic dancing scene to the rap party they had with fake rainstorm and umbrellas and stuff like the use of water is really central to it and every the, the mythology like they're all of these amazing celebratory accounts of how gene kelly came in with 102 degree fever that day without rehearsing and did it all in one take because it's brilliance it's just hollywood magic and the reality was that they actually rehearsed it for a week. All day, every day, just water. Water falling, water falling, water falling. Um, and there's this note in an assistant director's reports about the fact that, you know, they realize that they lose their water pressure at 5 p.m. every afternoon because people in Culver City are coming home and turning their, their sprinklers on. And so the note is basically, again, going back to Sam Altman's need for energy. You know, the solution isn't like, maybe we should just use less water or maybe we shorten the scene and have less rain. It's that we have to shoot this before 5 p.m. because we want all the water. We know it's like a, a finite resource of the commons and we want all of it. So we'll shoot earlier in the day. Um, so yeah, so part of it was just, you know, the intrigue of the investigatory process of archive research was really fascinating, trying to cobble together the environmental narrative between the lines. I mean, this is 1952. This is, you know, like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring hasn't come out yet. There's no popular conversation about the environment or anything. It's not like Donnan and Kelly or the studio were uniquely evil in their lack of environmental concerns. <clears throat> 
And so it was very much like, uh, you know, having to figure out a story that was there, that is there, that no one was outright saying. And so that's where it sort of began, not only the, the look at uses of natural resources in different ways in order to produce, basically, let me start that over. That is where I think I began the the the, the deeper sociocultural understanding or argument of the book, which is that Hollywood is this prime player in a larger tacit sociocultural agreement whereby we are willing, eager, supportive of the destruction of the real, of natural resources, the use of them, etc., in order to manufacture a spectacle that becomes part of the collective imaginary. And so, you know, I have, you know, I, I love that you, you're a very um, iconically sort of progressive, critical, cultural scholar, but you can still think back on these moments, uh, this interaction with Satan in the Rain, in a very whimsically boyish, appreciative fashion. And this was a blowback I would get in the early days of this project where I'd, I'd present on Singing in the Rain at like film and media studies conferences. And they often have, there are very cinephilic and, and, and things like that. And people would confront me afterwards and they'd be like, what's your problem with Singing in the Rain? Like, what do you just, why are you, why are you tearing down an institution? And they'd be like, what, what would you rather it never have existed? And it's like, it's a really tough question because it's like, no, I don't think that the omission of singing in the rain would have state like saved our planet from global warming or whatever. But if we didn't have any spectacles like that, if we had a completely different type of screen culture or simply one that wasn't industrial and electric, then yes, that would have been better for our planet and probably better for our societies so I, I guess so. Like, yeah, if we wiped it all out, but taking away that one film isn't going to change anything. And also I do, you know, I totally see, appreciate, uh, value, have spent at this point decades of my life uh, exploring the importance of shared cultural texts and experiences. And so, you know, I think that it's not a matter of just like finger wagging or naysaying or undoing the importance of, of, of and significance of, of things like that, but rather critically understanding how they operate and if possible, trying to push towards an alternative way of, of enacting it. Very well put. My last question, Prof Vaughan, in part you've already answered by exploring with us some of your archival adventures in terms of writing the book and specific with reference to Singing in the Rain. But I wonder if you could reflect a wee bit for listeners on how you go about research, how you find things out, particularly in the current moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, now it's like... Sorry about that. Um, yeah, Google, 
<laughs> um, Google, but not using underwater cable. Exactly. Yeah. And that's not that you have a, a I, I don't have a, an internal solar powered server, unfortunately. So I'm a bit reliant on the, um, vicissitudes of the data circulation industry. Um, excuse me. I think that, well, that's complicated for two reasons. You mm -hmm. know, I like, obviously the pandemic was a thing that meant no one could go anywhere. And so that really made like travel, even going to a local library or something really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, but mm, so much previous research and data has been digitized. It has been rendered in a format in which we can access it, find it more easily. We can house it on this little box on our desk. Um, but beyond that, especially if you're doing like research on industries in the past 20 years, like the film industry or like a um, big tech company, whatever, most of the actual research data is itself digital. Like it was never made in an analog fashion. There is no analog archive somewhere of like, Amazon web services, decision, executive decision-making um, processes that we could look through to figure out to what degree they actively conscientiously are destroying everything. <laughs> um, so I think that there's, it's, it's, it's a weird problem. It's almost like it's a solution that has been proposed that itself is in my view a problem because I think that digital research, online research, despite it's being bountiful and very convenient is also really problematic. And I think that a lot of younger researchers today are being challenged um, and made to feel like they have to be massively productive, multidisciplinary, all encompassing, omnivorously knowledgeable and that's not possible. The only way, and so you get a lot of like scanning and skimming of PDFs, highlighting citation. Now you have citation tools that make it easier to sort of migrate citations around, things like that. And I think that in the process of that, which <clears throat> again, like there are definitely benefits to it, but we've we're losing the the importance and the the understanding of epistemological change and, and growth uh, because we don't have time for it. You know, like there's, there's no time to track the development of a philosophical concept mm -hmm. over the past century because there are too many pressures to publish in a certain type of journal or to be able to tick off a certain box because so many academic job calls ask for like seven different skills and expertises. Um, so I think that that's a, a fundamental problem just in general in the way that um, sort of we approach knowledge and therefore how we approach knowledge building. Um, <clears throat> I also think that it's just worse. I mean, there's a great book called The Shallows that's all about the difference between reading an analog book and the sort of neuro 
pathways that it helps to craft and shape and how those are connected to other neurological processes like deep memory and empathy, whereas reading a screen helps to generate different neurological pathways. And so we become really good at multitasking and problem solving and micromanagement, but we're like literally ceasing to build the brain pathways for empathy and memory, um, which is terrifying. And so I think that like, you know, I think that those are massive again, like I think that digitization provided this solution to a problem that wasn't really there, or at least had been dealt with for centuries if millennia, right? Which is that we just had analog texts. And if you could find it and access it, then you could find it and access it. Um, whereas suddenly that problem is solved and that solution is providing a new problem, which is kind of the meta narrative for the digital world. Um, yeah. I have been, I would say my research has changed a lot in the past five years or so in two major ways. Uh, one that again, trying to step outside of the ivory tower, trying to work more with communities, industry stakeholders, policymakers, all the different voices that can get in a room uh, to try to more collaboratively co-produce knowledge and decision-making, um, but also trying to allow for more interdisciplinarity in, in my learning and my research. And I, interdisciplinary is kind of, has been a buzzword for about 10 years, I think, in, in, in the research world. And it's usually not actually being practiced. Um, and it's more like, yeah, I'll apply like cultural social theory to a film text. It's like, that's not really interdisciplinary. That's just using a certain critical method or tool for textual analysis. <clears throat> for me, like, I think that interdisciplinarity requires great discomfort and therefore most people want to avoid it because doing it means going into a place where you are not the expert, where you are very much the ignorance, you know, um, student, right? And I think that a lot of people who pursue research, teaching for a career, for a life endeavor, we do it because we want to be perpetual students. But we also kind of get funneled into something in adulthood, with jobs, with the pressures of tenure, promotion, whatever it is, grants, whatever, where we pick lanes and then suddenly it's like we're expected to be experts or we, you know, achieve a certain level of acknowledgement for this thing and then that's our thing. And then we forget what it's like to really be a student is not just to be like consuming information, but it's actually, you know, learning completely new things. And I try to put myself, I'm not saying I always succeed and I'm sure that I am safer than I would like to think I am, but I, you know, trying to work collaboratively and not just, you know, this is a huge problem, I think, in the humanities, especially is this notion that it has to be everything is single authored, the single authored article, the single authored book, the single authored career, the single authored tenure, all of it. Like that's a big humanities problem um, that I've tried to get outside of and try to work on more co-authored things, try to work on more collaborative research projects, try to work across different sort of 
ages and stages of, of education, studentship, professorship, etc. And yeah, sometimes that means not being in charge. And sometimes that means actually being uncomfortably clueless. Um, but I think that there's a lot of, of importance and there can be a lot of pleasure and, and a lot of, of, of significant living that goes along with that discomfort. Wonderful. Thank you, Prof Vaughan. And are there things on reflection that you'd like to add to or subtract from our discussion to this point? I feel like I, I reached a high moment there. And so <laughs> I, 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 I think that I, yeah, no, I, I'm glad that we went to that sort of topic because I do think that the way that we approach knowledge building and, and understanding the world is is something that's being greatly challenged today, both by sort of the neoliberal corporatization of education and also by the ubiquitous digitalization of, of how information is produced and consumed. And so I think that's something that we should always sort of keep actually in the foreground of, of discussions and, and discourse instead of just letting blend into this accepted uh, background. So you can feel free to end it where we ended before. Um, I am amazed that as soon as we started talking about cats, they all disappeared. So <laughs> I should probably go check and make sure that they're okay. Of course. Thank you very much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. It's been great chatting. Thanks so much for having me, for the invitation and, and for the discussion. It's been wonderful.